Thank you for your practice. As I mentioned before the meditation, this is the second talk uh, in a series of four or five talks on equanimity, upekka, in Pali. I'll do a little bit of review, maybe just by way of defining terms, um, which doubles as a way to remember the quality of equanimity, some of the characteristics of equanimity. So again, equanimity is upekka. In Pali, equanimity is one of the four divine abodes or boundless realms. Boundless realms. So pointing toward the notion that the mind isn't always constricted or contracted or confined by concept concepts that limit us. This boundlessness is pointing toward uh, a quality of spaciousness. Um, The Tibetans, I think, more than Theravada teachers tend to talk a lot about spaciousness. Spaciousness, boundless, without boundaries inclusive absent reactivity absent unwholesome sometimes upekka is referred to as an unshakable balance of mind I was once told a story about someone practicing a very long retreat in Myanmar who had temporarily taken up the habit of eating very raw bananas with the peel still on them to see if it would um, disrupt their equanimity. So uh, it's kind of a silly story, nor do I know why one would do such a thing or even if that story is true, but but I can say I'm comfortable saying that, that, that there are certain places or times, if you will, a certain set of conditions that can come together. And the stability of the mind is hard to break. It's hard to disrupt. And that's, you know, that's probably not too familiar to, 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 to most of us, to many of us. And it's particularly not the norm of the mind caught up in the, in the day-to-day reality of living in samsara. Um, My experience with sustained periods of equanimity have been retreat experiences. When the mind is very protected uh, by the container of practice that is being uh, suggested, being offered. And when there's a lot of opportunity for renunciation I would say that the protection of the mind and the renunciation go together on retreat. And so we, uh, 
first in renunciation, uh, eliminate some of the external or material or interpersonal distractions so that the mind can begin to settle. And then we're able to explore a deeper meaning of renunciation, which is that of uh, moving away from or renouncing unwholesome habits of mind. The things that we do that facilitate dukkha. Uh, all of this leading to uh, a mind that is both aware of but not reactive to external and internal conditions. So the mind stays very, very balanced. And some of you might remember this from a couple weeks ago. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi sometimes talks about equanimity as neutrality of mind. Um, there in the middleness, he says, there, there in the middleness. Sometimes I talk about things being value neutral. Uh, that language or that, that frame uh, is intended to suggest or evoke the mind of equanimity, um, implying, of course, that we subscribe our own values to things in life, which often is fine, uh, and we're, we're never going to stop doing that, I don't think. Uh, and a lot of us would probably agree that certain things have a high value and certain things don't. So sometimes this is not a problem. However, it's a problem when, for example, even if a wholesome desire uh, or want or need or value uh, is not in the moment playing out in a circumstantial world and we can't accept or tolerate that, and so then we suffer, right? So even though uh, we, could hold, um, we could hold a high value on kindness, um, if and when we see the absence of that, if we let the mind become too dysregulated, we can't think clearly and we can't respond in the right way, in the way that's most appropriate. So there in the middle between reactions that are too far left or right or up or down, uh, such that they they pull us away from being able to relate to life in the moment uh, in a way that's appropriate or helpful or skillful. Equanimity is also sometimes referred to as the gateway to enlightenment. The gateway to enlightenment. With equanimity well-developed, many of the hindrances, the unhelpful mind states that we are all prone to, um, have abated. And the mind is poised, essentially, for insight to manifest. See, in, in this practice tradition, we don't try to have insight. We cultivate stability and then allow mindfulness to get stronger, and insight happens on its own. 
see, we think we have the power. We're so, we're so self-centric. We think we have the power or the intellect to become insightful. But it doesn't really work that way. We hear techniques handed down to us over time from teachers. We practice them experientially. We stabilize the mind. And then we cultivate mindfulness. The hindrances abate and the mind sees clearly. With mindfulness, with investigation, with effort, with joy, with tranquility and with concentration cultivated, equanimity is sure to be the result. With mindfulness well cultivated, investigation is sure to be the result. With investigation well cultivated, effort is sure to be the result. And from effort comes joy. And from joy comes tranquility, which leads to concentration from which equanimity emerges. This is the seven factors of awakening. This chain of events is uh, very natural, as I said, with the right support, with the proper support. Uh, There's a sutta passage that says, all of the Dharma unfolding is natural under the right conditions. In this teaching, there is an important reminder that we can relax our wondering and worrying about whether our mind will ever be at peace. Such concerns usually reflect some level of self-doubt, but this is simply because we have not yet experienced the Dharma as fully as we can. Once we see beyond the fabrications of self, we know not only the self's unsubstantiality, but of our own mind's capacity for clear awareness unperturbed by life's fluctuations. This is equanimity. When equanimity is present, it's not that we don't want things to be different on some level. And it's not that we've given up whatever work we do in our own lives, in our communities, or in the world, or, or our communities, or in the world, for things to in the future be different. It's rather in the present moment we've dropped aversion, clinging, grasping, so that the mind can be at peace, and we can perceive things within and around ourselves clearly. So we're not making any great sacrifice. We're probably not even making any compromises. Around the higher order things that we want for ourselves, for each other, and for the world we live in. Equanimity is not numbing out. It's not this kind of stoic or uh, toxic masculine toughness. I, I just, um, it's not an absence of feeling or connection. 
it's quite the opposite. It's a it's a felt sense of what's really happening within and around. Coupled with a wise view that this, whatever this is, this happiness, this sadness, this depression, this anger, this frustration, this is this is a natural this is samsara. We just know, we just, ah, this is how samsara is. This is what it's like to have a mind and a body and a dualistic consciousness that uh, sees things and people and ideas as against oneself. This is how it is to have things not go the way we want. This is samsara. Samsara is supposed to be like this. That's what samsara is. So we remember that. Just as the the Dharma is unfolding is mysterious, there's also a logic to the Dharma. The Dharma, as I mentioned, is fairly reliable if we apply effort, patience. I think humility is important. First, we stabilize the mind by bringing discursive thought under control. We can call that concentration practice. Uh, Then the hindrances begin to weaken. And as the hindrances have less influence on the habits of mind, the conditions are right for the awakening factors to arise. Alongside and upholding equanimity, mindfulness, investigation, effort, joy, tranquility, and concentration. Each of these, the conditions that support the others in a mutually supportive causal chain that is more prone to right view in kusala, skillful action, kusala. Practicing equanimity, I think, in a sense, is putting uh, wisdom to the test. In fact, I think to some degree the cultivation of equanimity is taking the wise views we've heard and applying them to life circumstances even if and when it's hard to do so. Even if we don't necessarily know if this wise view is wise, if it will bear the fruit the Dharma said it would. But we make an effort, we recollect a teaching. We find ourselves in a situation, we notice the reactivity occurring or the blame, we're blaming someone else. And we feel ourselves preparing to say something hostile. We think that will make us feel better. We think it will protect us in some way. And maybe we remember certain teachings on non-reactivity and compassion. And we pause. We don't say anything right away. We listen more. Remember, We remember that this person has a long history like ours and experience myriad forms of suffering every day of their life. Dukkha. Every day. Every day, every person experiences dukkha. And so maybe in this one moment, we realize that in not reacting so quickly, so promptly, so habitually, 
our own mind settles a little bit. Maybe we even see or remember something that we appreciate about this other person. The mind grows balanced, or at least less dysregulated than it normally would. When this happens, we're encouraged to try it again in the future. Right? And over time, we get better. These are skills that we develop. So practicing equanimity is putting wisdom to the test. We, when we practice equanimity, we assume certain views and habits associated with the self to be unrepresentative of reality, not attuned with our true nature, and heed the advice of meditators handed down over thousands of years of practice. In a way, all effort at equanimity expresses a desire to understand anatta, not self. In the Samyutta Nikaya, it is written that even when obstacles crowd in, the path to Nibbana can be won by those who establish mindfulness and bring to perfection equipose. In the early teachings of Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, equanimity is discussed in relationship to the eight worldly winds. The eight worldly winds, or um, sometimes we hear vicissitudes, the vicissitudes, the eight vicissitudes. Vicissitude is a, a, a change of circumstances or a change of fortune, typically one that is unwelcome or unpleasant. And we're told specifically that these, um, this set of pairs uh, consists of one, gain and loss, two, praise and blame, three, fame and disrepute, four, pleasure and pain. So tonight we'll look at the eight worldly winds uh, in the context of upekka, equanimity. First thing that's important to say is that the list of worldly winds is comprised of inevitable experiences. And I I think actually for meditators who are cultivating a practice, um, we we tend over time to to see to to agree to, to agree more readily. That this is this is this is real. This is true. This is a part of my experience. In fact, I think if we're both aware, honest, and humble, we'll see probably that we're cycling through these worldly winds all day long. Just like dukkha uh, is threading itself through our interactions, through our experiences in daily life, uh, much of that dukkha is in relationship to and in, in proportion to um, this, uh, these vicissitudes, these changing phenomena, these changing experiences that we, that we must go through. So 
These are inevitable. They eat worldly winds. They are the endlessly changing conditions that we cycle through in our life. They are samsara. We cannot escape them unless through wisdom and equanimity. And even then, we only escape the suffering associated with them. Rather, we don't actually make them go away. Similarly, when we don't notice the worldly winds, something is getting in the way of this recognition. Escapism, distraction, numbing out, repression, addiction, a lack of humility, a lack of honesty, denial. Through turning our attention toward the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, in learning to work with them, we develop balance. And we are less distraught as these inevitable forces make their way through our lives. Gain and loss. Even just a change of temperature is experienced as a as a gain or loss. Due to the law of Anicca, impermanence, gain and loss are constant. The conditions for dukkha are arising all the time. And we're trying to create a world for ourselves where the conditions for dukkha won't arise anymore. And that's a huge mistake. That's why we're all still suffering. Due to the law of Anicca, gain and loss are constant. We lose material things. Relationships change. We age. Our health deteriorates. People's view of us changes. We gain money. We lose money. We even gain and lose time. A convention that divides limitless space into arbitrary measurable chunks. And yet we still have the perception of losing it. What is less obvious is how our experience of gain and loss is tethered to the belief in a separate self that has something to either lose or gain. Gain and loss ultimately is a kind of self Self, it's the self's report card, one that is based on something that is entirely created, entirely created in our own mind. The whole arrangement is a mirage that we take to be true, and yet it seduces us hour after hour after hour, and we suffer as a result. We worry about loss. We suffer a kind of loss by imagination before it even happens. 
based on how we think our life should be, based on what we think will make us happy, we imagine future versions of what we want our life to look like. We spend quite a lot of time doing this. And then we suffer because we think that we will only be happy if our life unfolds according to this imaginative view. It's like sitting down at the kitchen counter and drawing a picture on paper of the weather for next Monday. And then when Monday comes, you sit at the kitchen counter and you look out the side, it is raining out, but the picture has a big sun. It's like Monday didn't unfold the way you wanted it to unfold, right? So life is not like that. We don't create a picture in our head and then make it happen. There are causes and conditions out of our control. And so we will only suffer if we live by trying to make our life look like the picture we have drawn in our head. The same can be said of a similar phenomenon, which is suffering loss before it happens. We worry about losing our job, losing our relationship, even losing our clothes or our car, or that someone will eat the last pumpkin muffin in the refrigerator. We cling to so many things. We have trouble letting conditioned things change, but it is their nature to do so. And we live under the threat of loss all the time. And this makes us anxious, worried, fearful, and this can result in further clinging. So there's a negative feedback loop that is based on wrong view, wrong understanding, not wisdom. Instead, we could just let things pass away. Literally, we can go further than that and we can donate our clothes, give the last muffin to the next person who walks through the kitchen. We can practice giving away the things that we're holding on to in an effort to prove that impermanence is not real. Nobody owns anything. The muffin was never yours. The clothes really aren't either. No one really owns anything, at least not permanently. This is an illusion. And the, and the practice of the five daily re- recollections, which we've done a fair amount of together, it is said, my only true possessions are the fruits of my actions. My only true possessions are the fruits of my actions. I think when... Um, Dharma practice has cut deeply, which is to say when awareness is very, very sharp. And this can come through formal practice. It can come through, um, it, it can often come through pain or, or significant loss, like the death of someone. This, this kind of sensitivity that is intended to be cultivated through the five recollections arises on, on its own accord. Just this basic sense that 
Really what matters most is how I show up in this moment. That that, that, that is actually the most important thing. And am I kind? Am I present? Am I fearful? One of the things that happens with Dharma practice is that we see that we've wasted a lot of time. <laughs> this this, this uh, is actually a good thing. It creates samvega, samvega, spiritual urgency. So the, the Dharma teaches us how to watch the clinging mind to see how it fixates on certain things. When we want things and don't get them, we experience a sense of loss. When we get what we want, we feel temporarily like we are one up in the dizzying game of loss and gain. However, what we never seem to understand is why this game never ends, or worse, why we choose to keep playing it, even though it is so painful to us. It doesn't have to be like this. A student was recently um, telling me about the loss of an important relationship in their life. And um, uh, and they were able to express the, the, the multiple ways that it was hard. And after participating in a meditation program that I was teaching... They mentioned that the pain actually was not that bad, that there were even moments of well-being, which I took to mean absent of pain, at least temporarily. The various uh, textures of thoughts, feelings, sensations, including those that are unwanted and unpleasant, when met with mindfulness, are not particularly painful. Seeing this is a profound form of power. It is immensely freeing. It is a power that the Dharma grants everyone whose practice reveals its truth. It is also largely a power that folks don't use over others. In the Dhammapada, it is written... Winning gives birth to hostility. Losing, one lies down in pain. The calmed lie down with ease, having set winning and losing aside. The second pair of worldly wins is praise and blame. I think we all know what praise and blame are. Um, They can be very hurtful. Uh, They can... uh, Well, the phrase is, my feelings were hurt, right? And we all know uh, what praise and blame feel like. We all know what it feels like to have our feelings hurt. I think it's just as useful to be able to recognize when our our sense of self is inflated, like... um, I don't know if I have a phrase for that, like when our feathers are puffed up because we've done something well or we think we've done something well. Um, it's good to have confidence. It's good to feel proud in a certain certain sense. Uh, but this, um, um, this, this puffed up sense of the self as good or right or uh, 
or righteous can be very, very problematic. We, we become separate somehow, different in our perception than others, right? Uh, maybe deserving in some way. It's very problematic. As a general rule, we perceive one is good and one is bad. Praise is good, of course. Blame is bad. And thus we, we want one and we don't want the other. It's pretty simple. However, this means that we are only open to one kind of experience. But in this category, there are two experiences, just like in every other category. Our learned response to praise and blame cuts us off from half of our experience. We try to avoid blame, even though that is impossible, dismissing anything that confronts our made-up sense of self, our made-up sense of who we are. This is often, I might argue, because we don't yet have the ability to hold the emotional disturbance of criticism. This changes as an understanding of anatta develops. But praise and blame often arise out of other people's preferences and their perceptions of our actions, as does our praise and blame of others. The whole matter is really a big mess of projection based on personal preference. Of course, there are times when someone does something extraordinary, and there are times when blame, as a first step in accountability, is, war is a warranted response to egregious behavior. However, putting those aside temporarily, the point is to see that the way we see ourselves, if we are not careful, is sometimes based on others' opinion of us, and more importantly, to see how dukkha increases with blame, how it punctures our self-image. So we can learn to actually see the self and the self-making in this. This can be good from a Dharma perspective, because it shows us how flimsy the self is to begin with. We can't even control our own experience of self. If we receive praise, it makes us feel better, highlighting how we rely on external approval. However, this is very problematic because the praise will eventually turn to blame. And so the thing we are using to bolster our happiness is not consistent. It does not come from inside ourselves. It's not the Buddha's contentment or happiness. It's just getting what we want. Remember, the worldly winds reflect a world of constant change. If there's praise, there's blame. If there's blame, there's praise. This is why the Dhamma teaches a happiness beyond concept, beyond self. A happiness content with the rising and passing of phenomena. Not content with the disappearance of phenomena. Not content with the disappearance of the phenomena you don't like. Content with the rising and passing of phenomena. Praise and blame are like 
arrows that are always coming after us. We spend a lot of energy ducking and spinning out of the way of any incoming blame. Meanwhile, we bend over backwards, trying to catch all the arrows of praise to, as if we could like store them up for a bad day. If we're not careful, the arrows of praise and blame will make us dizzy, make us dizzy with dukkha. Equanimity is the mind that remains balanced and stable in response to praise and blames. Sees the impersonal nature of them in the context of um, relationship. The mind that sees clearly does not read into praise and blame any more than is already there. Projections, opinions, likes and dislikes, causes and conditions... Phenomena rising and passing away. The third pair of vicissitudes or worldly winds is fame and disrepute. They have a relationship to praise and blame. If there's too much praise, the result is fame. If there's too much blame... There's disrepute. Uh, Assuming our actions are ethical, we can remember that these result from perceptions and are part of a relative worldview. Um, In our society, athletes and musicians and actors and actresses are famous. They have a lot of status. They make a lot of money. They're famous because enough people adore the very narrow image of them provided by the media. The image that plays to our cultural fascination with power. Beauty beauty defined in a very certain, particular, very narrow way. Uh, our fascination with money. But this is all a social construct. It is, it's totally created. Once we see that these people are not any more special or deserving than anyone else, we see its projection on a large scale. We might also see how destructive it is. Fame and disrepute are exaggerated opinions of the self and projection of others, which is which in some cases can go so far as to become defining images. I am great. I am great and deserving of the praise I receive. I am horrible and deserving of the criticism and blame I receive. Or regarding the other, they are great and worthy of the praise they receive. Sometimes even if their behavior suggests otherwise. They are horrible and deserving of the criticism and blame they receive. These two notions of self can be demoralizing and worse if we do not see them with both wisdom and compassion. In the first case, one comes to feel entitled. They believe the praise, and it separates them from other people in ways that can eventually be extremely harmful. In the latter case, if we believe in the blame, it can corrode our confidence, trust, and our ability to take risks in the world. We essentially abuse ourselves, and it is far easier for others to take advantage of us. And in the final case, we have the two winds of pleasure and pain. 
pleasure and pain get a lot of airtime in Buddhism. And they show up here again in the list of the eight worldly winds, representing obvious and contrasting experiences in our life. Pleasure and pain, happiness and sorrow, both mental and physical well-being and suffering. There is an illusion at play here. On the one hand, when there is pain, we feel we have failed in some way, that we have done something wrong, that we have been outsmarted by some invisible evil force that is trying to make us unhappy. There, there is actually such a force, by the way, in Buddhist literature. Their name is Mara. We can even see this in our meditation. If there's pain, we think we're not doing something right. On the other hand, when there is pleasure or happiness, we give ourselves too much credit. Our ego gets inflated and we can even become self-righteous. In, in both cases, we have failed to see the impersonal, impermanent, and conditioned nature of both the pain and the pleasure. It's so difficult and yet so easy to be deeply contented and happy. But we cannot rest our hopes for happiness on the pain going away. The Buddha didn't teach that pain goes away. He taught that dukkha goes away. And dukkha is a result of our response to the pain of life. The mind of equanimity knows that pleasure and pain constitute a natural cycle and do not take the cycle personally, nor try to stop this cycle from happening in the first place. No less than we would try to stop a hurricane from hitting land with our bare hands. In fact, meditators with a well-developed practice have seen this very effort as what causes so much stress and suffering. After a certain amount of time, meditators, when confronting other people who are suffering, often observe simply the other's inability to tolerate the cycle of pain and pleasure, most notably the inability to accept the pain of life. This can be sad, particularly if we have come to understand that it does not have to be that way. We can also feel inspired to help. It can be the source of compassion. This is what the Buddha did, I believe. He decided to teach people how to meditate so that they could see this truth for themselves, experience it directly. So this is the normal lot for humans. This is samsara. Add to this trauma that many of us are so prone to, it is no wonder things go with great difficulty for us. Equanimity has to do with a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing not based on preference or beliefs, but seeing things the way they really are. Moment to moment, there is a basic recognition. 
This is all there is and nothing else. It is seeing in a way that allows for our heart and mind to remain balanced and upright rather than collapsing when things change or don't go as expected. Fundamentally, I think it is an ability to not invest so much in the agendas of the self, knowing that they too are conditioned. It is a seeing that allows for kindness and compassion while not making unrealistic demands on life or of others in the moment. It doesn't mean we don't want things to change, nor is it an agreement to let things remain as they are. It is just that in this moment, we see them as they are. This is all there is and nothing else. This implies something about the law of wholesome change. It does not occur from a place of reactivity or attachment to view.